And honestly, um, uh, following, following Jesus is, um, there's always more to discover about God. And, and about the time that you think you can put them in nice, neat squares, like I'm going to try and have you do in the book of Daniel, God just blows out of it, doesn't he? He just blows out of it and reveals something much greater, much more beautiful than you ever could imagine. But what I love about the faith is that, is that we also have this amazing privilege to simplify it. All I desire, God, I don't understand the intricacies of the visions of Daniel. I don't understand the intricacies of Revelation. But I desire to worship you. And God, I desire to obey you. It's that simple. Well, let's open God's word together, can we? Surprisingly, I'm going to take you to a slightly different place than you're expecting. I want to take you over to some of the background of our story in Second uh, Kings. Second Kings, uh, chapter 24. The way back there toward the beginning in the historical section of our Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, followed by First and Second Chronicles. There's a lot of the history. And what I love about the Word of God is that it's anchored in history. It's not just a, a bunch of moral stories to help us feel good about ourselves or even to help point us away. It is actual history. Real people in real circumstances trusting God and experiencing Him. And what I love about the Word of God is that it invites us to live vicariously through them, to experience the story through their eyes. Let me just give a little bit of the background and say that for hundreds of years, God had been warning his people that, that they were becoming much too comfortable in the world in which they lived. Their hearts were, were with ever-increasing amounts being turned from the things of God to the things of the world. And, and honestly, like me and possibly like you, they became very comfortable with the things of the world such that they couldn't distinguish any longer what was of God and what wasn't. And he warned them, turn, return, repent, come back to me. Come back to me, right? And they didn't. They didn't. And a hundred years before the events that we're going to read about right here, he specifically warned them and said, if you don't turn, your children are going to be taken away going to be taken away to another country and they'll suffer greatly. Remember that they've already experienced this once, right? They had experienced the exile of being in Egypt and for 400 years the people of God were not even allowed to return to their homes, right? They lived as foreigners in a foreign land. But when they came back, they quickly returned, as we said when we studied Exodus Last year, as I discovered, it was a lot easier to get out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of them, right? And so uh, here now in Second Kings, God's word is fulfilled. And once again, the people of God experience the judgment of God. Uh, chapter 24 of Second Kings, beginning in verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim, was the king of Israel at that time, became his servant for three years. Then Jehoiakim turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, and the Lord sent against the king of Judah 
the king of God's people, bands of the Chaldeans and bands of Syrians from the north and bands of Moabites and Ammonites from the east and sent them against Judah, look at this, to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them from his sight for the sins of Manasseh, a wicked king who had lived before Jehoiakim, according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. God, take this simple word, would you? And make it truth to us. God, help us to understand how you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. How you invite us to life. But God, you hold us accountable to the words that you share with us. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts today would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, do you remember when you first um, encountered Daniel? I have to be very careful here because I'm recognizing that possibly um, you've never encountered Daniel before. That's one of the crazy things about our culture right now is that there are generations, generations plural, who've never been exposed to the truths of God's word, who've never heard even the simplest of stories. But do you remember I'm smiling at you, Sandy, because you probably taught the story of Daniel and Vacation Bible School on a flannel graph or a board. Do you remember when you first heard that story? Oh, they're such familiar stories. The other night, um, it's so good to have my son-in-law, Jordan, and my daughter, Chelsea, and, and my granddaughter with us here today. We were sitting at the table asking ourselves um, in our little table conversations, if you could have any superpower, what would that be, right? But here, in God's word, we get, we get to see the power of God working through normal people like Daniel, like Hananiah, like Azariah, like Mishael, right? These stories of real people who, who encountered the power of God and whom God used to transform the world around them, around them. Well, um, I don't know about you, but most of us remember stories like, um, like, um, and we would say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names, right? In the fiery furnace. We would remember stories of, of Daniel in the lion's den. And it's tempting to just take a, to take a, a, a quick truth from that and say, wow, here's an example for us, right? And we would not be wrong to do that. The scripture is full of examples of godly men and women who who honored God in their faithfulness. And, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But this isn't really, the book of Daniel really isn't a story about three young teenagers or four, including Daniel. Yeah, they were they were probably somewhere between 15 and 16 years of age. I was asking you, Nevaeh, earlier, how old are you? Because you're just about the age of the people that we're reading here in this story. Not a, the story of Daniel is not about um, teenagers who learned faithfulness, but about an incredible God who loves us so much that he will not leave us in our sin. 
but will literally go to the ends of the earth to draw us closer to him. So I want to invite you to to open your heart to the stories of Daniel. For some of you, it's the first time. And it's going to get kind of confusing sometimes. That's why I'm going to give you some tools along the way to help you keep track of where we are in the story. Not Not just the story of the book of Daniel, but the story of humanity. But also, I'm I'm going to invite you to to see yourself, to be Daniel, to be Hananiah, Mishael, uh, and Azariah, right? To put yourself in the story and see if God's word doesn't speak to you as well. Well, today I just want to invite you to think for a moment about the beginning of the story. And then we're going to just press pause and say, why are we doing this? Try and set a foundation for the rest of our our winter here in the book of Daniel. But as we saw in 2 Kings, uh, ordained by God, God took one of the most wicked uh, kings, one of the most wicked nations of their time, and used that wicked nation to take his people into exile. Uh, uh, Jeremiah had prophesied about it. Habakkuk had prophesied. He'd warned them, you got to turn or the judgment of God it's going to come, Micah. All those, all those obscure Old Testament books are telling one story. They're calling, they're begging the people of God to turn from their wicked ways and, and set their faces again on God. But they did not do it. And so uh, um, Babylon, who had just overcome the, the greatest power in the Middle East right then, Babylon, who had just overcome Assyria, then came and destroyed the second greatest um, superpower of that time, Egypt. And almost as an afterthought, um, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, besieged Jerusalem, and and took, conquered the city, and took 10,000 of the best and the brightest of their culture. And, and marched them 800 miles back to Babylon. Isn't that amazing? It's actually amazing from a human point of view, an amazing strategy. Let's not just wipe out the other cultures around us. Let's take the best and the brightest from those cultures and 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 let's reprogram them to our Babylonian way. Now you're going to start to hear some uh, echoes in your mind as I tell this story, right? Let's reprogram them to the ways of the world and 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 take advantage of this culture rather than just destroying it. So what was their strategy? Well, their strategy, first of all, was to humble them, which they did by destroying everything that they were familiar with, their worship, their homes, everything. Then they marched them 800 miles. They just figure that out and say, I, I've been trying to do some walking, and I can. I think the max I've been able to do is eight miles in one day, just in normal walking. And I go home and get in my recliner and camp out. They probably walk somewhere between ten and fifteen miles a day. That means somewhere between sixty and eighty days of walking from Jerusalem to Babylon. And when they got them there, they took some of the best and the brightest. We have a lot of the best and brightest of our. Uh, next culture coming out, the next generation right here in the room. And and they put them in a training program, a three-year training program. And they taught them now the language 
of, of Babylon. They taught them the philosophies of Babylon. They, they impressed upon them uh, the culture of Babylon, even to the point of, as we'll see, changing their names. And, and they tried to, to conform the best and the brightest of God's people into the ways of the world. Now, is that echoing in anybody's mind, right? Because, because um, we're experiencing the same thing, right? The people of God are being, are, are being conformed to the ways of the world. They're much more subtle than Nebuchadnezzar was, but we're experiencing that very same thing in our culture here today. So, so why study the book of Daniel? Because um, we're going we're gonna to see God in different ways. We're going to see ourselves in different ways. Let's start with God. What, what does the book of Daniel help us to understand about God? Well, first of all, I want to suggest you, I'm going to slide over to Daniel myself here, Daniel chapter 1. It, it, the book of Daniel helps us to understand that God is, and it's a word we use here at all of that all the time, but might be unfamiliar to you. God is sovereign. He is sovereign. God, what God says happens. If God acts, then, then, then we experience the results. If he withholds, then we experience the results. In the, the, the first chapter of Daniel, three times we see that, that God gives, right? In, in, uh, in verse 1, of um, Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, same story we just told from Second Kings, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Right? The Lord. He doesn't but say... Press pause for a second. Oftentimes when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament and it's in capital letters, remember? That is the name of God, the personal name of God, Yahweh, that they were so averse to actually articulating that they substituted that. And even our Bibles, our ESV substitutes capital L-O-R-D. This isn't that word, right? You see Lord right there. It's not capitalized in your in your Bible. Why? Because it's a different name. It's It's the... Name of a sovereign. Daniel wants us to know, uh, God wants us to know through the book of Daniel that he is sovereign over our lives. And, and yet it may look like we're being overwhelmed by pestilence, right? But God is Lord of the pestilence. It looked to them like they were being overwhelmed by this most feared of armies, the Babylonian army, but, but the, the army didn't take Anything that God didn't give them, and I would go even further, as we saw with Egypt, even command them to do. God is sovereign over our lives. And if we experience something, it's because God is allowing it. Now, now you may be saying, are you telling me that God wished this pestilence on us? I'm not saying that God wanted this pestilence, but I'm saying God is sovereign over this pestilence. And God has a purpose in even this pandemic for us. The question is not, is God sovereign over it? The question is, what will we do in response, right? 
Well, the first thing we want to know about God, we learn about God from Daniel, is that God is sovereign. But, but inherent in this also is this truth about God, that God is just. You cannot fly in the face of a living God and not expect that at some time God is going to respond, right? If you flaunt the laws of God, then at some point you are going to suffer. And, and, and I'm, I'm not sitting here accusing you of flaunting the, the law of God, though Paul would say oh, there are none righteous, right? No, not one. We all have in some way. But no matter how much we've tried to follow God, we live in a culture that is increasingly turned away. And, and, and God put us in this culture. And as God judges this culture, we will experience that judgment as well. And so uh, Daniel and his people experienced the justice of God. Not because they were particularly evil themselves, but because they identified with the culture in which they lived. Do you remember our definition of justice? Justice is getting what you deserve, right? And, and even the people of God, when we turn away from God, God is just, and, and we experience some of the consequences of that. And, and, and that would be enough. God would be worthy of my worship. I would still sing all the songs we sang. I would still surrender like, like Jerusalem surrendered to Babylon, I would still surrender to the living God if he were only sovereign and just. But praise God, he is so much more than that. God is also gracious. In other words, even in the midst of his justice, he provides a way for people to come to him. He provides a way of escape, as Paul would say in, in 1 Corinthians, right? God has provided a way. He has graciously made a way for his people. What we're going to get to explore as we study the book of Daniel is a way, a way to honor God in the midst of a culture that does not honor God, a way to live in a way that magnifies God even in the midst of incredible circumstances. That's astounding to me, the relevance of the book of Daniel, for people just like us right now. The key of it, with all the other things going on in the book of Daniel, the key of it is who God is. If you miss that, you miss everything. He is sovereign. He is just. He is also gracious. But beyond helping us to understand God, the book of Daniel also helps us understand ourselves. You see, even here, living in the comfort of what most of us are very familiar with, the United States here, um, this is not our home, amen? We have come to know that, that we have a home in eternity, and this is not it. It's just a dim reflection of our true citizenship, right? We are a people in exile. We are a people in exile. And as we watch how Daniel, as we watch how, how Hananiah and, and Mishael and, and Azariah responded to their exile, we're gonna, we're gonna be blessed. We're gonna find ways of living in our exile as well. Yeah, we, It'll help us to understand ourselves. We are a people in exile. 
but we also are a people who are in grave danger of losing our identity. We're in grave danger of losing our identity. Note the many ways that the Babylonians subverted the the Hebrew culture, right? They changed their location, right? And I don't know about you, I'm, I'm privileged, I've done quite a bit of traveling in my life, and every time I go to a new place, there's a, there's a level of anxiety that I live in. You know, where, where am I going to find food? Where am I going to find shelter? Um, is transportation arrangements going to work out? Um, by moving location, they turned their worlds upside down. But they went further. They not only changed their location, they changed their language, right? And, and uh, uh, the, if you control the language of, of a culture, right, you control the culture. Several of you are nodding, and I know you understand what I'm saying here. Um, we have to be very careful in our culture about a language that gets redefined, right? How many words have... Um, I'm going to use strong language here, gotten hijacked, right? Have gotten hijacked from their original meaning. Why? Because people understand that if you control that language, then you control the, the thought processes that follow. And so many times uh, we found ourselves on the defensive. People are all of a sudden um, uh, changing the meaning of a word, and we're on the defensive and have to find a new word. We've experienced that at all of that. I'm going to use a... Uh, example even of the, of the word evangelical, right? There was, there was a study done just in the last couple of months, last month of the, are you ready for this? So contrary to everything we're trying to say today, the hundred top evangelicals in the United States today, that, I mean, everything about that sentence is wrong, right? But the hundred top and, and half of them were not evangelicals. Half of them did not submit their hearts to the authority of God's word. Uh, it, it was just astounding how, how uh, the word evangelical, which means someone committed to the good news, the evangelion, right? The, the, um, the evangelistic message, people committed to that, uh, now became a political word instead of, instead of uh, a religious one. Now, you control the language, you control the, the hearts and minds of People, by the way, watch what happens. Well, I'll hint at this more next week, but but the language, the literal language that the book of Daniel is written in changes twice. Chapter 1, it's in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are, are uh, in... Uh, 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 oh, the name's just escaping me. Help me, Jordan. Aramaic, thank you. I, I couldn't get Amorite out of my head. Aramaic. Um, Privileged to have a guy working on his doctorate in Old Testament uh, here in the the room. Uh, Chapters 8 through uh, 12 are back in Hebrew again. So um, language is a powerful thing, powerful thing. They changed the location, they changed the language, um, and and then they changed the labels, right? They changed their labels, even what they were, were, were called. You, have, you, have you noticed that I've been saying over and over again, um, Hananiah, Mishael, you don't know those guys. Who are these guys, right? Am I talking about three other strangers, right? You do know them, right? But you know them by their Babylonian names, right? You know them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'm coming after you, Sandy, 
uh, for teaching me in vacation Bible school the, the Babylonian names. I'm teasing you, Sandy, but isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Not really when you think about it, right? Let's think about the name Daniel. The name Daniel means God is my judge. In other words, I stand before an audience of one, right? I don't have to... I don't have to somehow find my approval in what you think of me. God is my judge. They changed his name to, to um, Bel, the false god of Babylon. Bel protects. Right? They changed the name of Hananiah, which means God has been gracious to Shadrach, the one who responds to the commands of Aku, another false god of Babylon. Mishael, who is like the Lord, right? Who is like our God to Meshach, who is like Aku, right? They're mocking the very names of the people of God. Azariah, the Lord has helped, became Abednego, a servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. In each case, they took a Hebrew name that, that anchored that person's identity in the true God and changed it to a cheap Babylonian imitation, right? What about, what about even the food that they ate, right? Um, God's word was really clear about what foods were acceptable. And we don't know completely. It could be as simple as that if you ate pork without cooking it well, you died, right? Um, or it was a test of could they follow something as simple as don't eat this. But the first thing that the Babylonians did was invite them to eat at the king's table and to have to tempt them with all kinds of things that God had said not to eat, right? Um, the, the Babylonians were, were completely trying to transform everything about the identities of the people of God. So not only did they try and change their identity, but but the story of Daniel is going to help us understand ourselves by preparing us for the challenges to come. Daniel is a, um, a story about two cities. It's a story about the city of God, Jerusalem, which appears to be conquered, right, uh, by a greater city, Babylon, but which when we read the end of the story, as we will after Easter in Revelation, we realize that uh, New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, right, we realize that the true worship of God is the only worship. And, and Daniel helps us prepare for that time when we live in the cities of men rather than the cities of God. So what do you do? What should we do in anticipation of this? Now, I want to stop for a second because I'm sensing that some of you are going, um, come on, stop with the woe is me stuff. If we, if we just, if we just, Buck up and be men and women, right? Then, then um, we can we can secure our own destiny. No. God is sovereign over those things. God has put us in a spiritual exile. We are not where we ultimately will be, and He's inviting us to be faithful in the midst of that. Right. So, what do we do? What do we do as a result? Resolve ahead of time. Resolve ahead of time. I'm so sorry. Remember when I when I was uh, talking about this? I think we were talking about um, sexuality and how important it is to 
to resolve ahead of time what you're going to do, right? Don't make the decisions in the middle of the date, right? Plan ahead of time what your standards are. And I think I shared with you how the, right at the beginning of my dating life when I had a 55 Chevy with a really big back seat, and, uh, and I, I took my girlfriend to um, uh, the parking lot of the Christian Science Church because I didn't think anybody would ever discover us there, and uh, snuggled up next to her in that big seat and forgot to set the parking brake of the 55 Chevy. And it was so imperceptibly moving that neither of us realized until the back end of that Chevy ran into the wall of the Christian Scientist Church. And it's like God saying, remember me, right? Um, resolve ahead of time. What are you going to do? Um, are you going to honor God with your life? Or are you going to always try and be just one step better than the culture around you, Right? That's the, the plague of our days is, is that we, we see righteousness as just being slightly better than everybody else around us, which is not hard to do. And we have one standard, and it's a standard of the living God. Resolve to anchor your identity in him. Who are you, really? Are you uh, uh, just a neutral thing that can be swayed by any culture around it? Or are you a child of God, created in his image, set apart to represent him to the world, right? Where do you find your identity? Is it in your work? Is it in your relationships? Is it in the team that you root for, go Colts, right? There's only one identity we all have in common. All of us were children of earthly parents, we're children of earthly parents, and all of us are the children of God. So resolve ahead of time to set your identity in your relationship with God. Um, resolve ahead of time not to sell your birthright, right? Don't sell your birthright. Remember Esau, right? For a temporary pleasure of a bowl of soup, his conniving little brother uh, got him to sell his birthright. Now, now, what was his birthright, right? Uh, it, it was his, his uh, birth order. He was the firstborn son of Isaac, right? And, and in giving up his birthright, he gave up his right to serve God as a priest. He gave up the double portion of his inheritance with Isaac. And, and the reason I'm responding the way I am is because you have a tremendous inheritance awaiting you. Children of God, all of the resources of eternity are yours in God, right? And why would you sell that? Why would you give all that up for the temporary pleasures that our culture offers us right now? Don't sell your birthright, right? Resolve ahead of time to be obedient to God's word. Resolve ahead of time. We're going to see this over and over again in Daniel where, where God's word came into conflict with something in the Babylonian culture. And because they had resolved ahead of time, what they would do, it was not a moral dilemma for them. Even when they didn't know the future outcome, it was not a moral dilemma because they had committed themselves to a truth much greater than, than anything the Babylonian culture could possibly offer them. Resolve ahead of time 
to be obedient to God's word. That's why I really want to encourage you. Go deep. Such a great time to make new commitments there. Go deep into God's word, right? Um, plug in to, to, um, to a small Bible study online or in person. Uh, find brothers or sisters who will hold you accountable, who will ask you the hard question, will say, how's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with your family, right? Plug into those things. I guess what I'm saying is be proactive. Be proactive in godly relationships. And one of the gifts of that is the spiritual disciplines. Come on up, worship team, if you would. Again, this Wednesday, Cheryl's beginning a study of of a liturgy of of the spiritual disciplines. Uh, And I've had a chance to look at the book. It's just an awesome opportunity to say, what are some of the gifts that God has given us to lay a strong foundation in our identity in God? But for now, let me just encourage you, jealously guard your time with God. Jealously guard your time with God. Jealously guard your time with God's people. I'm so... I'm so excited that you're here. Yes, you online, that you're here with us right now. And and those of you online, this is not a rebuke, but I just want to encourage you, if you can, watch with us at 9 o'clock. Discipline yourself to do that. Why? Because there's just something that happens when we do something together. Amen? There's just something that happens. And I completely respect your choice not to be in person if you are at all at risk or you're concerned. I don't want you living in fear while you're sitting in a pew. But be with us in spirit at the same time and, and, and go much beyond that. I have several brothers in the room who I'm in relationship with, who I meet weekly with, who, who help hold me accountable to who I am in Christ and, and commit yourself to your time with God's people. But lastly, be proactive. Find grace in the little obediences the little obedience. If you've come to Christ, and some of you have, in the midst of this pandemic, there's a little obedience. Be baptized. Be baptized, right? Make a public expression of your inward commitment to Christ. But but for those of us who have been baptized, who have walked with Jesus, Jesus gives us this incredible gift this gift of coming to the Lord's Supper and remembering him. Now, he says, as often as you do this, in other words, there's not some set times we try and strike that balance of doing it just often enough to remember without it becoming ritual. We probably err on too few times a year. But but in that little obedience of remembering Jesus, of remembering his life through his body, of remembering his death, through his blood, of remembering the sacrifice that he made in those little obediences, God prepares us. God strengthens us. As as evangelical Presbyterians, we believe God actually infuses us with spiritual grace through this little obedience. So I want to invite you at home, if you didn't have a chance earlier, to prepare some elements. Just press pause. That's okay. Press pause on your on your uh, screen and and grab some juice and grab some bread. Now, welcome back, those of you online with us. 
um, those of us here, I invite you, if you do not have the elements with you, if you just gently raise your hand, anybody that still need them, um, I wonder if, um, if Tammy, would you grab some for Josie? Does anybody else need those elements? Uh, Bob, how many, Bob? Just one. Um, Bob uh, needs them as well. We will bring them to you. Let's just take a moment while they're distributing those elements and let's, um, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this great, great privilege of this little obedience of coming to you through the sacrament of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And God, I, I, just, I just pray that you would honor our broken hearts here. We need you, God, and we need grace. We just pray that you take the simple bread and the simple juice and make them the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Make them the spiritual presence of Jesus so that as we take them today in obedience, God, we might be strengthened on the inner person. Oh, we love you and we dedicate this bread and this juice to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Tammy. Well, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took an existing celebration. He took the Passover bread and he surprised them with this new reality. This is my body, he said, given for you. Do this, in other words, partake of this bread in remembrance of me. Take this bread, would you? And by faith, allow it to enter your body, not just this little piece of bread, but the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you do this in remembrance of him? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And be very careful as you do this, but peel back the lid to that cup if you would. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm willing to covenant with you right now. That I may be in you and you may be in me. Do this, he said, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this Oh, God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came into our world, not to judge, not to condemn, but but instead to bring life. God, even as we conclude our worship here today, we recognize that the service is not over. It's just really beginning. God, you have filled us with your presence. Now you challenge us to go out into the world and be the light of Christ. Oh God, you've examined us. You've searched our hearts. You've, you've sought to understand our desires. God, today, in the presence of one another and before the living God, we declare this is our desire. To honor you. To worship you. All that we are, all that we have, all that we ever will be. We surrender to you. 